0: Letters to Dead People, a collection of letters written from the future to some of the most interesting people in history, with questions and the occasional suggestion about their lives. This is Art and Literature, Volume 1. Letter to Enid Blyton, Green Hedges, Beaconsfield, Buckinghamshire, United Kingdom. Targeted delivery date, June 1957. Dear Enid, I am delighted to be able to reach you and hope you have time to read my letter given the prolific rate at which you are writing. Up to 50 books a year, that's astounding! With all that writing, isn't using a typewriter on your lap rather uncomfortable? Aren't there any desks at Green Hedges? Anyway, that aside, you might actually also be interested to hear that even now, today, you are in the top five of translated authors. Now, personally, I particularly have enjoyed what we might call your gang series books. You know, Secret Seven, and my personal favourite, The Famous Five. Unfortunately, today, a gang series would be seen very differently. Maybe with Julian and Dick running a county lines operation, Georgina, he slash him, being given an ASBO for dog napping, and her parents being accused of nutritional deprivation due to the withdrawal of ice cream privileges. But hey, you know, times change. Now I know that even for a prolific writer like yourself, getting everything you write published has been challenging. It's a shame that some of your other drafts for series never saw the light of day and in general have been lost. While perhaps two gone a rave in Manchester was unlikely to find a wide audience, I did have high hopes for three astrologers go for a stroll near Babylon, although I guess maybe it would have been judged as a rehash of previous material. 13 Go Wild in a Bread Factory was a clever title, I must admit, although possibly had limited scope for plot expansion. However, I loved the concept for 27 people riding a car to the seaside. And I'm delighted to tell you that actually an early draft manuscript was recently discovered, uh, leading to the Guinness Book of Records entry for 27 people in a classic mini. Probably the one I really wish you had pursued was your planned series about a boy called Harold Potter, Named after your real friend, Mary Potter. He had magical powers to create unlimited quantities of ginger beer and sandwiches. I really think you could have made something of that. Anyway, all the best. Timothy Shift. Letter to Leonardo da Vinci, Porta Orientale, Santa Babilia, Milan. Targeted delivery date, March 1507. Leonardo, ciao! I just wanted to catch you on the off chance that perhaps you could help me. When you were at your first school, thinking back, age maybe between five and eight years old, is there any chance you brought home any paintings that you'd done? Maybe just some coloured-in sketches or something, even if not complete anatomical studies? Nowadays, for parents, such paintings all seem to be stuck on the refrigerator for a few years. Don't worry what a refrigerator actually is, it's irrelevant. Later, the pictures end up in a box in the attic. And when the children go off to university, the parents want to throw them away, but the kids won't let them. Typically, of course, the kids never come back and collect them either. I don't suppose your parents kept any in the attic, did they? I do know that you kept very detailed notebooks yourself, so perhaps even you have one or two of these early works squirrelled away somewhere. I asked, it's just because uh, a couple of art historians that I know here would love to see whether they could determine your talent developing at a young age. You know, determinations of weight of stroke, subject matter, colour renditions, etc. All purely scholarly stuff, I'm sure you understand. That, and to be honest, I'm a bit short of cash right now, so anything you could find could come in handy. Anyway, many thanks, Timothy Shift. Letter to Geoffrey Chaucer, clerk of the King's Works and Keeper of the Lodge. Feckenham Forest, Worcestershire, England. Targeted delivery date, August 1392. Dear Geoffrey, I hope you don't mind me communicating to you in modern English, which I admit is somewhat different to the Middle English that has made you so popular. You'll notice that many of my words look similar, but some of the endings are... Our pronunciations would be very different too, since there is a change of foot for you starting in a few years, called the Great Vowel Shift. The good news is that this will provide a much greater standardisation of English. The bad news is that it creates the bane of many a school pupil's English literature course trying to understand what the hell you wrote. Take your seminal work for instance, The Canterbury Tales. Look, I know that many of the tales were reworks of earlier stories, but the framing, wow that was novel. Nobody has ever created such a distinctive framing arc as a pilgrim group traveling to Canterbury to visit the shrine of Thomas Beckett and then embedding the stories within it. Pure genius. Now I'm sure you've planned out this whole project thoroughly but I would make a few points if I may. Number one. According to your general prologue there are 29 pilgrims and I believe you want to record four tales from each. Two on the way to the shrine, two on the way back. Hopefully you don't need me to do the maths, but that's 116 tales. And look, I know you're a busy man with being uh, the clerk of the King's works, including all the repairs that you have to organise for the various royal palaces, etc. And I think you've been squeezing the writing in now for about five years between that. And so far you've managed to finish about 25 tales. And only the nun has got a second tale, uh, let alone anyone having four. I mean, have you really thought this through? Not wishing to state the obvious, um, but given that you're already in your 50s, and you probably know better than I what the life expectancy is in the 14th century, uh, maybe you kind of need to wake up and smell the coffee. Hmm, actually, given the date, that won't work. Um, Try sniffing some malted grains, then. By the way, am I right in thinking that your main scrivener is one Adam Pinkhurst? If so, maybe he can hurry things up a bit. My second point is that you're writing your tales in the London dialect of Middle English, and although this can cause some confusion, you may be pleased to know that confounding people using dialects is a tradition that hasn't been lost. Many a puzzled tourist to London town have been told that their hotel room is up the apple and pears to give reception, a call on the dog and bone should they need anything, and that they need to cough up a monkey in terms of the bees and honey when it comes time to settle their Jack and Jill let's just say it separates the true travellers from the Grockles. Something that I'm sure will resonate with you. Thirdly, while I'm all for the ethos that is the taking part that really counts, rather than who wins, of course, I do wonder if the prize of a leg of mutton of somewhat dubious freshness and a couple of pints of ale at the Tabard Inn at Southwark will really attract the calibre of storytellers you're seeking. Maybe throw in a couple of tickets for the winner, along with their significant other, chosen by a public vote off, of course, to the Tower of London as, well, now that you've finished all the new and tournament stands, that will be a great day out. A further point is that the Miller's tale certainly causes a reasonable amount of shock and surprise at what goes on. To be honest, I'd be surprised if people didn't turn white while hearing it. Well, perhaps a whiter shade of pale, at least. Far be it from me to proffer any lines that might be worthy of inclusion in what will become your magnus opus. So instead, I've lifted and tweaked a few lines from a modern dialect-driven poet, Pam A traveller gave me a friendship cake. I never met the fella. We served it up along the way and all got salmonella. I'll leave it to you about whether you want to include that. Uh, By the way, as an aside, on a totally different topic... I bring heartfelt thanks from florists and insincere card manufacturers from throughout the modern world, due to the fact that you were the first person to write about the association between love and St. Valentine's Day in the Parliament of Fools in 1382. Cupid has indeed struck. Anyway, best of luck in finishing your tales. Yours sincerely, Timothy Shift. Letter to Lancelot Capability Brown The Gardens at Stowe, Buckinghamshire, England Targeted delivery date, March 1741 Dear Lancelot, first of all, I hope this letter reaches you successfully since my first attempt went to a 12th century knight who I doubt would have understood much of what I was talking about. Anyway, assuming you received this, congratulations on being made head gardener at Stowe with a princely annual salary of £25. You must be cock-a-hoop. It's a real step up in your career at the age of just 24. Now, I'm sure you're starting to plan out your ideas, so I thought this might be a good time to review the results of your earlier commission to Mrs Ethel Jones of Lovell, Buckinghamshire. Now, I know Ethel was overjoyed with your transformation of the back gardener of her her one-up, one-down terraced house. In particular, she loved the group of garden gnomes, the one hole crazy golf feature with miniature windmill, the water bath made out of a recycled bedpan, and not forgetting the George II style bird feeders. Fantastic work. As well as that earlier commission went, I do wonder if perhaps you might need to revise your plans as you look at the more ambitious projects you'll need in your new job. For example, firstly, I just don't think the gnomes idea will scale up. You would need thousands of them at Stowe to create the same effect. The supply chain for producing them would be a nightmare. I know the little darlings look kind of cute, especially the fellow with a fishing rod, but I'd recommend you look at something else. Perhaps use small clumps of trees in a group. At a distance, they could have the same effect as a group of gnomes. And while the sustainability credentials for recycling domestic items of water features is high, maybe you could take that a step further in scale and just go back to nature. Perhaps try out natural streams leading to lakes. Get rid of all that formality. See how it works out. The crazy golf idea was indeed good for entertainment. But also, how about taking that militarisation-centric approach even further? Your clientele in their large, fancy houses would love the idea of miniaturised versions of houses and chapels and temples, etc. You could squeeze one into a corner where the scale is hard to judge. Look, sounds a bit of a folly, I know, but but give it a go anyway. However, those bird feeders that allow the seeds to be eaten out of the mouth, nose and ears of George II are great. You should stick those everywhere, at least one every 30 yards or so. I hope you don't mind the above suggestions and feel free to ignore any that you don't think will work out. And I know how you like to describe a garden as having a capability to improve. You know, that's a nice mantra. Perhaps, as a nickname, it might stick. Yours sincerely, Timothy Shift.